I'm really excited to be here again with Glenn, and we are now on episode four of The Nature of Life. And not surprisingly, part of the nature of life has to do with entropy. And entropy is this massive question that the deeper you dig, the more questions arise. So we're gonna cover a little bit more about that and then move on into the free energy principle and look at mm -hmm. that. Okay. okay. So um, what I wanted to start out with, um, since, since entropy is such um, an interesting subject, it seems like that's where a lot of people wanna come here and listen. Um, I need to do a lot better justice to it than, than you'll find on any of the videos. So I wanted to introduce this with uh, two different ways to approach the subject of entropy or the second law in general. And versus um, uh, infamous uh, quote from Richard Feynman, who said, um, if anyone tells you they understand quantum mechanics, they've only told you one thing and that's that they're a liar. Huh? I think <laughs> the second law is, is sort of in that category. It's um, there's more to it than anyone can possibly explain. Every area um, from math, communications theory, physics, chemistry, biology, everybody has their um, niche definitions of entropy in the second law. And each area is fine. I, you know, there's no, um, it's not like somebody has it wrong per se. But then uh, the second thing I, I think about is, is the parable of the seven blind men and the elephant which I'm assuming most of your listeners are familiar with. And again, entropy is one of those things, everyone seems to have an idea of what it is. They're clearly all talking about the same thing, but what that same thing is, is the big question. And since I can't give you an answer, I thought we could at least explore a little bit of it at a time as, as, a, as a start starting segment that's coming up. Just pick one little question, one little in, uh, area of interest, focus on that, and then, and then not try and push it any farther. Because a lot of the definitions, a but lot of the- What you just said makes me think about your, our last conversation when you were describing the idea that um, everything has an inside and an outside. Mm -hmm. And when you can have a very complex inside, like a watch, but once you get to the outside of it, looking at it, you can interact with it on a very simple basis by just mm -hmm. understanding the hands. Well, I think that's what's happening here. Everybody who has to deal with the question of entropy puts it in a box that's efficient for them so that they mm -hmm. can work with it from the outside. But the inside of it, they don't have to look at all the, the nitty gritty complexities of what it is because they're only dealing with it from their own perspective. Mm -hmm. So we assume that we're all talking about the same thing, sort of. But yet we use different languages. And um, so, like I say, there's no answer. So we'll just sort of ex take an adventure, and a trip and explore different uh, areas, different questions. A lot of the, the, the real Zen Buddhist, you know, Cohen questions you'll never see on a YouTube or a TED talk because they sort of throw the whole rest of the talk out the window if you start thinking about them. So, uh, I think this would be a good place to uh, show that little video clip. Okay. And uh, I'll yeah. share screen here. And um,
Uh, hold on, just so, free energy. Yeah. No, that, that's not the one. Um, it's uh, uh, entropy is not entropy disorder. Is not disorder. There it is. So you okay, and we're starting somewhat into the video, but I really like this video because of the nice graphics. So we'll see this situation as it's presented in usual discussion, and then we'll come back and take a look at it and understand what's wrong with this. So I guess start the video and we'll just kind of let it run out and okay. so people can get me, an idea of what's happening. Stop then, okay? Okay. Okay. Prostate. Can you hear it? For example, the a little bit. Of possible microstates is much larger. Okay, let me let me go back and try it a different way. It's obviously not working at this stage. So um, it's quiet, but I heard it. Yeah. I don't understand why it does that, but we'll try it another way here. Well, honestly, here we go. Let's set it back again, and here we go. Microstates is different for each macrostate. The number of possible microstates. Can you turn the sound up? Yeah, it's as high as it'll go. I'm not sure why it's not working. If the number of possible microstates okay. is larger, that sounds better. That this particular macrostate has a higher entropy. Okay, stop there. Maybe we should play it over again so we yeah. won't be talking over it. Yeah, I um, I apologize to our listeners that this is not working. Typically, it's a learning curve. Yeah, um, there may be some other sound thing that's um, affecting this, but it should work properly. Let's try again. Macro state. For example, the number of possible microstates is much larger for a macro state with a larger volume. If the number of possible microstates is larger, then we say that this particular macro state has a higher entropy. Okay, I think that captures the, the image so people can have a good visual for what comes next. And that is uh, the little, the, the drawings I sent you. Yes. Since I, I lack um, a whiteboard, <laughs> I so did my want, best. Can I take a look at that? Yes. Right here. Okay. Okay. These drawings I, I had to make myself because I couldn't find any YouTube um, uh, channel that discusses this. And this is an indication of what's wrong with what you just saw. Now, it appears as what they're suggesting is as the volume is allowed to increase, that the entropy is increased because the disorder has increased. Um, I'm not sure if that's what they intended, but that's the way it comes across and that is not correct. So I've drawn this uh, schematic to help uh, understand what's happening. The top is the gas molecules in one end constrained by some barrier. And the difference here is 
that my box is completely insulated. And instead of a wall at one end, I have a piston. Now, the second image that uh, barrier is taken out, the gas molecules are now allowed to bounce around in the whole system. Now, since no heat has gone in or out of this cylinder because of the insulation, delta Q is zero. So that means the entropy has not changed. So even though there's a greater volume and it would seem like there's more disorder, entropy has not changed. So that suggests either that our intuition about what disorder is, is not what mother nature is thinking or entropy is somehow not exactly related to disorder. Now, the second step is this is the one that Clausius worried the power stroke. Clausius realized that a heat engine is a complete cycle and you have to think about the compression side. So now in the bottom, we push the piston back in to try and compress the gas back to where it started. Now the work done is going just going to be an integral of the PDV. Now to keep the gas molecules from getting hot, uh, going up in temperature, we have to drain heat out of it. Now that heat going out is the work done. Now all of a sudden we've transferred entropy out of the cylinder to the, whatever cold reservoir, which could be the rest of the universe. So here we have an example of an expansion to a larger volume, uh, zero change in entropy. And then the recompression, we have entropy going back out into the universe. Would, so this, I thought, would this be comparable to when you were saying that it's not the messy room that is an increase in entropy, but when you start to organize the room, that is when entropy begins to increase. Yeah, in some sort of, um, Metaphysical sense, that's what I'm trying to say. It's, it's the compression stroke in this case where the entropy is actually generated and pushed out to the universe. But the initial expansion does not involve any um, increase or change in entropy, even though the volume has gone up and it would seem like the particles might be more disordered. But um, like I say, this is a thought experiment and I thought I should just get this far and stop and let uh, listeners think about it before I try and go on any farther. Um, well, if then maybe... I qualify as a listener, I do have a question. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Um, one of the things that I saw on a video that I was watching, they said the only things that change entropy are those that change thermodynamic properties. So is, is that what's happening here? The piston is changing the thermodynamic property? On the way in, but... If you mean by thermodynamic properties, um, pressure and volume, those have changed. Uh, so in the second scene where the gas molecules are now expanded out to bounce around in a larger volume, the pressure on the, on the walls of the cylinder has gone down, the volume has gone up, but the product is going to stay the same because since no heat entered or left, the internal energy of the system has not changed, which means the temperature has not changed. So, so wait, so sense, I, thought, I thought that heat was generated when the molecules bounced around and hit each other. And so if they're not- No, not, not in, 
not in this uh, simple statistical model. These are just hard spheres uh, bouncing off of each other, uh, perfect, perfectly elastic collisions. So, so this is all just theoretical. Uh, it's close to, you can attain, get close to this in reality, yes. Uh, it's called an irreversible expansion. And so you'll see this in some of your textbooks if you hang around in the subject long enough, but it's too complicated. And I think it's, it's too messy to present in a simple uh, science video for um, a lay audience. So that's why they skip it. That's why I had to create my own drawings on this case. So, so one of the other things I read is that entropy is about energy transfer. Yes, um, as Clausius coined the word, it's a transformational current. Um, um, I'll step back and as I'm struggling to explain this, I think it might help to realize that the second law of thermodynamics is what is fundamental. This concept of entropy is a mathematical tool or device to allow you to turn the second law into some kind of mathematical statement. So I would always start with uh, the second law first. And that was, was essentially Carnot's observation about the maximum efficiency of a heat engine. So- What was Carnot's statement again? Uh, the maximum uh, efficiency for a heat engine is the T hot minus T cold over T hot. So the, the greater the difference between your hot and cold reservoir, the more efficient the motor will be. But like I say, the second law has different interpretations in different areas, depending on how it's being used. Um, another way I might try and say it, I'm not sure this is totally correct, but entropy is about the process of converting energy from one form to the other. So imagine um, you're, you're taking off and you're driving to San Francisco. Now the energy might be the gas you consume driving there. Entropy is kind of like the, the traffic laws that tell you where you can drive and, and how fast and how slow. It's, uh, it tells you about the process of doing it. So. That's a better way to look at it. And in the long run, it might be better to just use, skip using the word disorder and probably try randomness um, as a better, better way to capture it. But clearly the example here shows whatever you think disorder is, is not exactly what mother nature must be doing. So it's time to think about it. So again, it's entropy is more about the process of moving energy around. Whereas next week or next time, I wanna start getting to the notion of counting states and the statistical mechanical view. Or what Boltzmann did was essentially take the process and turn it into a thing that we call entropy. And you could, um, so rather than a, a, a trip it's a destination when you get to Statmec. Uh, again, I'm not sure that's helping, but that's how I look at it sometimes. So I think this is probably enough for one day, <laughs> unless you have more questions. Uh, well, I, I did have one question, but it's kind of a Zen Cohen kind of a question, I guess. Um, 
been thinking about the idea of in the box and outside of the box. And when something happens outside of the box that, so the idea of free energy is that which is available to do work. And so I'm thinking of like a waterfall. There's a lot of energy that's mm -hmm. in a waterfall. Is that, um, is that doing work if there's no, if, if no one has harnessed it? It's just the waterfall by itself doing work. Well, if the, if the waterfall is there, we don't usually, um, when we're doing external work like a steam engine or let's say the, the waterfall, we don't generally use the word free energy. I would just say use the word potential energy. So the water at the top of the waterfall has a higher potential because of gravity. As it falls off the top, gravity does work on the, the, the water droplets, accelerates them. And so it is doing mechanical work. The potential energy is being turned into mechanical work as the water falls down, speeds up. And then when it hits the bottom between the turbulence and the frothing, and there's probably some slight heating, um, that mechanical energy gets converted back into heat or um, random energy. So there, so, yeah. is, so there is additional entropy being put out into the universe. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, so it, what I was trying to get at is that life is not required for entropy to be increasing. No, no, no. That's one of the things that I think people often mistake. Um, that and heat is always moving, whether entropy or anything is changing. There's heat and temperature are related to entropy, but they're not the same thing. So the hot side of the universe is getting cooler and the cool, cold sides of the universe are getting hotter. That's what's happening. And uh, life sits in the middle. Like you say, life lives in the waterfall. There's energy from that flow to do mechanical work. But yeah. Okay. That, okay. So well, like the, the geyser was a good example where the heat of the earth turns the water and to steam and blows it out. So there's another case where the earth is doing work on water, but mm -hmm. it's, it's not useful for us anyway. Okay, that was very right. helpful. Thank you. So now we're going to move on to the free energy. So, yeah, Carl Friston. You want, and, you want me to bring up that video now? Uh, well, we can just talk about it. Um, I don't know if people might want to watch it because it's it's actually kind of jam packed with with statements and uh, a lot of timestamps. So I'd like to talk about it and is it okay to just let your viewers um, watch it? It's only what, about 10 or 12 minutes, 15 minutes? Uh, sure, um, I'll I'll just bring it up on the screen so they can see it. And then I'll put a okay. link to it in the, uh, it's free energy principle, Carl Friston. And right, in the first uh, couple of minutes, you know, you can skip in the last couple of minutes, you can skip. And uh, in between, there's a lot of, a lot of meat, I think, a lot of stuff worth talking about. Okay. So um, I'm not sure I'm going to remember everything. I've got some notes, but we'll, we'll try and cover as much as it, my uh, brain cells will remember at the moment. Okay, we'll just go from your notes then. <clears throat> okay. All right. So is, he uses the term free energy principle. 
And I've tried to dive into that a bit. The mathematics is, is pretty impenetrable. So I might take another week or two to get into that. But the actual math, I don't think is, you need to understand to get the, the gist of what he's doing. Um, but this might be a good chance to talk about free energy. Um, when in the waterfall example, we're doing mechanical work, uh, I would call it external work. In that case, you can talk about potential energy, gravitational or a spring, spring systems or, but there's other ways to do work. And that's when the work is being done internally. So uh, chemistry would be a great example where you have chemical reactions. You have certain chemical potentials that then drive the reactions forward or backwards. And this is where you see Gibbs free energy is, um, is a term they use in chemistry. So, um, or you get into rocket engines. You're, you have fuel coming in and oxidizers, they burn. There's a chemical release of heat. Um, then the shape of the nozzle causes the fluid flow to accelerate. So I think in that case, uh, the term, the quantity they work with is enthalpy. And there's also another thing called Helmholtz free energy. So it all depends on the system that you're working with, but generally the free energy is when you're talking about systems doing work internally, that, um, rather than doing external work. And so in a chemical reaction, there'll be chemical potentials, there'll be number of molecules or atoms that represents the free energy and that will tend to a minimum. At the same time, the internal entropy wants to go to a maximum. And when you get the balance between those two, that's when a chemical reaction will stop. And I'm not a chemist, so I'm getting out of my area here. So if you usually see this term free energy, it's, it's dealing with the system internally, things inside changing. Um, so I'll stop there. So, so the free energy tends to a minimum, but entropy wants to go to a maximum. Right. So that's so when they come to a balance, then that's mm -hmm. the, so that would that be the this is a really stupid question. Would that be the same thing as equilibrium? Yeah, that's chemical. You know, okay. you, you, you know, where your chemistry, you have your reactions and your concentrations. And I forget all that, but I went through it. And uh, there's a balancing equations where you can come to how, what the final concentrations will be, things like that. Um, Gibbs free energy is also constant across um, phase transition. So if you um, go from liquid water to ice water, uh, Gibbs free energy doesn't change. Or you go from uh, liquid water to steam, Gibbs free energy doesn't change as you cross the, the border. So because the composition is the same. Right, so it's a, it's a good useful tool when you're trying to come up with equations to describe change of state. Um, uh, this is, people always see a physicist doing equations, but they never ask where the equations come from. And that's the important thing with um, symmetries. Because uh, they are what allows us to put an equal sign. So you have an equation of state that describes that your system, whatever it is, you have a before and the symmetry says whatever it comes after has to be the same. So now you have the equations of state and you can put an equal sign between them and start solving whatever variables you, you want to. So 
if Gibbs free energy stays constant across the phase transition, then that lets you put equations of state on one side or the other, and then let them be equal at the boundary. So yeah, and then you can solve for whatever you're solved for. But that's, that's the business of doing physics. That was very helpful. Wow, that, that just cleared up a lot for me right there. And okay, plus well, a really big picture connected to that. So I'm gonna think about that one for a long time. Yeah, that's the, that's the nice thing about symmetries that people, the physics community just so takes them for granted they don't understand how to present it to the layperson. You know, the, the business of doing physics is finding equal signs so you can solve for equations for variables in an equation. So one thing I really liked about the Carl Friston video is he's sort of tackling the, the basic question that we're trying to tackle with this series in what is the origin of life? And we're trying to do it from the, the, the side of the physics and chemistry. So if you're a physicist or a chemist and you're the design engineers and you're trying to come up with this original first life form, you have to have some idea of what life is uh, in a non-biological definition. And that's one of the things that he's trying to do. He's trying to give you that definition. He's, he's working on it and he touches a lot of the same bases, I think that I'm trying to, but he uses different vocabulary words. So I thought it would be a good way to contrast how I would say it versus how he says it. And then maybe between the two people will help me sense. Because so, you're coming at it from the standpoint of being a neuroscientist and you're coming yes. at it from the standpoint of being a physicist. Right, so he's a neuroscientist and he's a, um, a statistician. That's, that's his, his tool set. And I've actually seen him on videos on the coronavirus Uh, the statistics of, of things. So he's got a name out there. Free energy is something he's done. That's his, his baby. So um, that's why it's hard to find out anything else about it except for what he's, he talks about. So it's a good place to start. It's just asking, well, what do we mean by life? I mean, what is it we're seeing that we say that something's alive? And towards the middle or the, the last half, he talks about the ink drop. Yeah. You put a drop of ink into the water and you'll see it disperse. And so we don't usually think that's alive. But he said, if all of a sudden you saw the ink drop start to coalesce and come back together and then start breathing or changing shape and doing things, then you would say, well, that's a sign of life. Um, and I would extend that. Um, how often have you ever said to yourself, um, like a bureaucratic organization or something, and you go, well, then it took on a life of its own. And so that's another hint as to what a good a possible definition of life is, is to stop and think about the times you've used that phrase, and then maybe take it seriously instead of just an analogy, well, maybe you are seeing something come alive. It's just not a biological. And typically you see this in collective phenomena. An ant colony was a, was a good example, but a bureaucratic uh, organization, um, a department office, uh, 
I've noticed in my engineering day, when a company gets beyond about 80 or 100 people, you start to get little enclaves, little fiefdoms within the company, and there's little power games and, and the departments that take on a life of their own. And they're making their decisions for their benefit of themselves. And anyway, I'm sure people have encountered plenty of that in their life. So. Yeah, well, that, that brings up for me something that I've been thinking a lot about the last couple of days, which is not strictly related to entropy or Carl Friston, but it is this idea that properly understood dominance is sacrificial, not, not um, the absorbing of power unto itself, but sacrificial giving. And, and I come at that realization just from what it means to produce a piece of art. Because in a piece of art, that which is dominant, that unifies the, the canvas, that unifies the painting or the picture, yeah. That dominant thing is not there to call attention to itself, but to call attention to that which is different. Because the dominant thing is much of the sameness, but that which is different is what is supposed to be focused on. That's what the viewer is supposed to see. Mm -hmm. So the dominance gives up its power to the focal point. And, and likewise, the focal point is sacrificial in that it Anyway, the whole thing the whole thing works if you think about dominance as a as a sacrificial move rather than a power move. And what happens with the bureaucracy is that it becomes dominant, but it takes power unto itself and it starts absorbing power in. Mm -hmm. So it's it's the reverse of what proper dominance is supposed to be. But it does take on a life of its own. It's mm -hmm. just the wrong kind of life. Yeah. Well, there are parasites in, in this world and there's that uh, and uh, take their life from other life forms. Mm -hmm. So, and there's viruses, there's all sorts of crazy things. So a number of things Carl Friston talks about as he's uh, developing his topics. And the first one, he talks about Markov blankets and Markov boundaries. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's rather technical term, but I think there's a very intuitive way to, to express this. And it, it'll help you deal with the concept of boundary. And an example I'll take is my church congregation. Though I haven't, we've been shut down. I haven't had, seen each other face to face in a long time. But it is, how does you define a congregation? It's not the people that are inside the building. Somehow the congregation is, um, we're, uh, tend to be a family where people, we see each other outside of church, at the store, at Home Depot. Uh, my wife and I found our, the church we're at. It's um, because a number of the homeschooling parents that we were with went there. So um, there's a, a collection of us who are homeschooling parents with our kids the same age. Um, it's a small rural community church. I think it's been there like over 130 years, continuous. So uh, a lot of people, uh, there's one family was four generations there. Wow. So the, the, the point is what makes the congregation isn't the physical boundary of the church. It's, it's the connectedness between all of us and, and people go out of the way to help each other. So when we're talking about boundaries, 
and Carl is getting at this, it's not a wall, it's not a membrane, which Alec would usually think. It can be a set of connectedness, relationships that bind people together into a, a group that then become identifiable. And then of course, in our church, there's, there's some people that are just very outgoing and helpful and they tend to be the face of the church. And there's people like me who's, who's Asperger's and so I'm not that social. So you get to dis distinguish individuals that sort of represent the community as a whole. And that's what Carl is uh, to some extent is getting at. But what I really wanted to emphasize here is that boundaries can be uh, functional, not just physical. So does that help make sense? Yes, yes. And one of the things I noticed when I first started looking at his stuff on Markov boundaries is that that it that the Markov blanket actually seems to represent um, three generations of family. There's the there's the parents of the child, but then there's the child's children mm -hmm. and then the other parents of those children. So it's like three generations of family, which is another way of looking at that connectedness unit, mm -hmm. which is fundamental to everything is the family unit is the fundamental. So, um, well, actually the, the parents are feeding into the child. So the, the parents is really the fundamental <laughs> relationship. So it's just a, a and, and it's set up that way across, even outside the boundaries, everything is set up that way, the way that the, um, the way that the information moves mm -hmm. and it's always moving forward in time. So, yeah, I thought his, I thought his dis, uh, discussion of Markov blanket was really interesting. Mm -hmm. but I, I, boundaries can be functional, not just physical. Right. So there, that gets to your openness. You've always asked about the openness of boundaries and that's one. Uh, people can join the church, people leave the church. Um, when you have a, a permeable boundary like that, another thing that will always come up is there has to be an immune system. There has to be a response by the group to <clears throat> protect itself from something foreign coming in that would tend to break up the group. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, uh, we have, I guess the really bad example or a good example is we had a, a interim pastor or new pastor who came in and he was very much a social justice uh, warrior. He brought politics in and all of a sudden now the left, right, conservative, Democrat, uh, the divisions started coming into the church and it was ugly. And uh, thankfully he left after a year but there's a case where the immune response didn't community that then started to break it up. Um, that's the nice thing about families and small communities. We can agree to disagree because we're raising our kids together. We go to the same schools. We shop at the same stores. People yeah. see each other at work. And so we don't want to let the, the outside politics come in and mess that up. So always if you're looking at some kind of living life form there always have to be an immune system or response of some kind whatever you want to call it i've been super thankful with our church congregation that the the leaders of the church every time something happens in our society that is causing division 
they they make an announcement at the beginning that's very um, compassionate about what has happened, but then they remind us that we are one body and that we are made up of people who have different ideals and different ideas. We all worship Christ together and we are a family. And they just, they make that every time. So, So it never turns into a divisive thing. And I'm super thankful for that because you, you want a place where you can go and feel at peace and not feel that your thoughts are always being monitored by somebody else to see whether or not you fit in with whatever mm-hmm. the crowd is doing. Okay, so you, you, you're sensing that you're inside the boundary. You're part of the group. Yeah, and that there's an immune system that's mm-hmm. preventing the division from coming in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the next thing he, um, I think he talks about the persistence over time. Uh, as one of the hallmarks of um, of what qualifies as life. So, again, getting back to that question, when you say something seems like it's coming alive, what what is one of the things you're looking at? And a, a persistence, a boundary stays together over time. So that must mean that there's some kind of restoring force as as the relationships, the bonds between the elements start to stretch. There has to be something in place that keeps everything wanting to come back together again. Um, That's where he gave the the ink drop example. But persistence over time is also um, a hallmark of strong emergence, which is where I I hope to get to someday in these talks is is to the concept of emergence. So in, in a lot of respects, that's what he's running into, but he's not using that vocabulary. And then he goes on a little bit farther talking about what, what you see functionally, what is life doing? And he talks about what are called sensory states of the system. In other words, the system is making measurements on its environment, gathering information about its environment. It's, it's an input side to the, the, the life form or whatever it is that's happening. And in that case, I would use the word uh, asking questions. So, but he uses sensory states. Um, it's about it's a process of a life form making measurements, gathering information about its environment. And so, like I say, I like the word questions, or as if you want to use measurements or observations or sensory states, as he uses it. I'm happy to use any vocabulary that people are comfortable with, because I know some people have issues. Then he calls. Um, active states, which are the response of the system um, based on the information and then some process, which he's not quite, which is his little baby there. Um, The life form acts back on its environment and he calls those the active states. And I use the word choice. The system makes a choice uh, as to do again, my vocabulary or his, either way, I'm, I'm happy to use whatever words people want to. But there's two things on the outside, um, measurement and then reaction or response. But what happens in between is where he uh, comes up with his free energy principle. Um, there's inferences made, there's yes and no decisions, um, a combination of if, else, then kind of processes that uh, all will go through and eventually end up with the decision as to what, how to act out. 
So that's where I eventually want to get, but I want to pop the hood. What he does with his free energy principle is he models what's happening in the middle using statistical models. Whereas what I want to do is, is pop the hood and actually go inside and see what's really happening. And if you go inside, what you're seeing is computation. And I don't know if we'll have time to discuss that. Um, people tend to think computation is what your computer's doing, but if you dive into the theory of computation, it can get very, very basic. And I want to touch on that later. Uh, then let's see. The other thing he talks about is how well, let's, a life. Let's just stop on this thing with the sensory states and active states for a second, because when you were talking about that, um, he he talks about that at a very fundamental basic level with very small organisms, but he also talks about it at the human level with our sensory states being our taste and touch and smell and, and all of that bringing us information. And then um, our active states being how we act upon that information that we've received. So I like the way you frame it with the sensory state being asking questions and the active states being choice. And I wonder if we might reframe it just a tiny bit more. So with, with the sensory states and the active states, um, the, the, well, first of all, the idea of choice, the active state, well, he's talking about a model that, mm -hmm. that every yeah. living thing has a model of how the world is, and then they're making measurements to see how well they match up with the model, which I think is a really interesting idea that has a lot of, it has legs and it has a very deep underpinning. But um, you, you get some information from the sensory states, you get answers to your questions from the sensory states, and then you act as if you have a, you act as if you have a plan or you act as if you believe something, you make a choice, but that's also what, um, you know, Jordan Peterson always says that it's your actions that tell you what your values actually are. Mm -hmm. So your, your position on the, the value of, uh, from good to bad, your position on that um, paradigm is, what your your actions actually represent so so that's something to do with that in between part there the inferences the if else then that leads to mm -hmm. that position of value so choice is not just i will do this or i won't do that but it's got an underpinning of i'm doing this based on some decision that i've already made about what i think is good mm -hmm. And even an organism at the lowest level would be making that decision. It's e either going right or going left is is going to be better for you know going one way or the other is going to be better for me, and that's got to be based on something. Right. So it's the sensing the light or sensing some concentration of food or yes. heat or temperature gradient, and, and that's got to come it, from a model that those things are going to be helpful to me. There, there's not some underlying information underneath all of that that the organism already has. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So, but the question, you know, if, if we want to dive in, is where is the model located? 
for us as humans, we're, we're too complicated. So we, we actually do keep a model of the, the world around us in our head. And that is it's a simply a question of bandwidth. Uh, our senses, eyes, taste, ears, they, they, the sensory pathways are not fast enough to keep up with how quick your brain wants to look at things and sift through things. So our sensory organs are always updating a model that we're keeping in our brain someplace. And even our eyes and ears, there's already processing going on in, in our organs before the nerves ever get to uh, our brain. So in a sense, we're a bit of a distributed computer system, mm -hmm. uh, a, a lot of the, so one of the things will we'll be more sensitive to motion. Uh, color is different parts of your eye. So if something moves in the side of your eye, it will send a quick signal to your brain and then you'll turn your head to look and, and you'll see what it is. Um, your, your senses are always looking for the anomalies uh, is your favorite word. Or another way to think about it is when they send video, one of the ways you compress video is you don't send every pixel, like the image behind me is not moved. So to send a, you know, the video of me, all it has to do is update what parts of the picture have changed. So a lot of our sensory input is just looking for what has changed. And it keeps a model in our brain updated. And that's what we operate from. Mm -hmm. uh, optical illusions, uh, auditory illusions. Yeah, my daughter told like me that. that there's some, some, uh, some kind of frog or something like that, that that only updates every four seconds. Their visual cortex only updates every four seconds. So mm -hmm. everything that they're looking at is already four seconds old. <laughs> We're well, so lucky that we update faster. <laughs> we do. But, you know, so you might just say a, a mentally healthy individual is one is in, for whom the image in their brain uh, is mapping very realistically to the world around. But when what's happening, the model in your brain is, is out of sync with the world around you, then we have issues uh, trying to get along in life. But simpler organisms don't have that problem. So um, that updating is only for uh, living life forms that have nerve systems. So bacteria doesn't have nerve systems. So it's, um, it doesn't keep a model in its in its environment. So that's one of the places where I think Carl Friston, his model is, is built up around a human or um, a life form that has a nerve system. I'm not sure it's extendable to uh, bacteria or oh, a plant. So he started at the top and then tried to scale down. Right, he's a neuroscientist. So that's yeah. his world is, is the brain. And uh, I think that's one of our, our, our challenges is to try and take knowledge and, and wisdom and understanding it one, from, from one field and see if we can map it over to other fields. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so as, the, as far as the free energy principle goes, I'll dive into it a little bit more if, if anybody wants to hear uh, just for my own um, Understanding it seems pretty complicated. Um, so down the road, I'll email you if I, if I make any uh, headway on that. Um, and the other way to look at it is the model that we keep in our head is like cache memory. 
that you have in your computer chip. Um, the processors are so fast that the memory can't, the normal memory in your system can't keep up with how fast the processor chip runs. So the processor chip has its own little memory cells and that right inside internally where it keeps all of the, the current stuff it needs. And so then there's a memory manager that moves your data and program from outside memory into the chip cache. And then the chip runs off of the cache. So it's, it's a comparable to how we work. Uh, well, so the free energy principle uses the word free energy in front of it. So I'm assuming mm -hmm. it has something to do with this idea that free energy wants to move towards a minimum. He's using it in a artificial intelligence way. So I think that's what kind of trips tripped me up is I thought he was talking something about chemistry, but it's more, it's a way of modeling um, a dynamic system, you might say. And because the modeling, um, the mathematics he's using resembles the mathematics from chemistry, he, he just chose the name free energy. But uh, I caution, he's not talking about chemistry. Um, generally, if you, when you're working in artificial intelligence and you're having your system make some kind of decisions, learning or whatnot, there's usually some kind of um, cost or um, reward function that your system is trying to maximize or minimize. And that's how the programs work. They're dynamically trying to get the system to a place that adjusts for whatever the reward or um, was. Is that, am, I, am I making sense at this point? Oh, no, absolutely. I, I, I was hoping you'd continue a little bit longer. I'm, I'm just, I'm, my, my brow is furrowed. Okay, I can keep going. <laughs> so the, you were talking about artificial intelligence and that there's always some cost associated. So well, that's the word they use, cost, fun, cost function or reward function or a potential energy function. The mathematics looks like the mathematics of thermodynamics, but it's purely programming. And uh, it's called reward hacking in uh, AI. You make a robot that's supposed to be a janitor and the reward function is it goes into a room and it keeps cleaning until there's no more mess. So that's the function it's trying to minimize is the amount of mess in it's, it's picking up in its visual sensors. So that's the reward function. So the robot goes in there and it runs until it, there's no more mess and then it calls itself done and it leaves. And one day the robot figures out that if it puts the bucket on its head and it can't see anything, then it's done and it leaves. So that's how you, um, you can hack a reward function by circumventing it. So things like that go, <laughs> what? It's so human. <laughs> I know, but yeah, it's, it's a bureaucratic problem um, when you get um, too bureaucratic of a government, when the decisions are too far away from where the actual input and output actions are, you end up with layers of middle management and the rewards functions get messed up. So um, 
we Maybe have the same problem with our um, our healthcare system in this country. We got too much separated between the the um, actual giving of care and the cost involved with that and then the consumer on the other end. There's too many layers in between. Right. So all these reward functions are, are messed up and the actual cost functions are messed up all in between. Mm -hmm. So there's no, the signals can't get through. Right, so we, everything gets out of balance and um, so I don't want to go there because I used to work in um, <laughs> medical device well, <laughs> design. So. Yeah, no, I've, I've, I've been in the kitchen and I've made the sausage, so um, I have a lot to talk about if we want to ever go there. But there is a lot of misunderstanding about how the medical industry works in this country. So, And you're right, the less we know, understand in, as a populace about how things work, the harder it is to make good solutions. So, um, well, and I think that's by design, going back to your description in the last video about the inside and the outside of a thing. Mm -hmm. When the inside has a very high complexity, we want to put it inside of a boundary so that we can interact with it as a very simple thing. And, and so that's what happens more and more as the, our world gets more and more complex. They're taking all of these complexities and putting them inside a box and then all we have to do is deal with all these boxes but it also means we don't know what the heck is really going on mm -hmm. and uh, and it makes it way easier for a very few people to control everybody else by by setting the standard as to what the boxes are and i think that's yeah. what the social media has really done to society is is put the uniformity of boxes onto society Used yeah. to be lived in Montana. It was a completely different world than living because of the internet. The world is the same everywhere. So I didn't know that you lived in Montana. No, I never have. Oh, I see. I see. No, but I'm just I, rural. You you could have a completely different culture in one part of the country from another part of the country, and that way, different. I would say meme sets different exist. They're geographically separated, but what social media has done to our country is forced, um, taken away the geographic barriers. Um, fences make good neighbors. Well, we've lost all of our fences, so now we're sort of butting heads, um, socially um, different. Well, and there used to be a, a different character to every region of the country, mm -hmm. but now wherever you go, there's there's your Home Depot, there's your Best Buy, there's your Costco, you know, everywhere you go, it's the same. Pretty much, yeah, there's Starbucks. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a really sad thing. <laughs> I And of course I'm getting old and so I remember all these things from being a child, but we used to drive cross country a lot because there we didn't have money to fly. So we wanted to go someplace we'd have to drive. And, uh, and there would be all the, instead of the great big billboard, somebody would go out and put out little signs one after another on the road and each sign would be a little part of the story and they would tell you stories and then- Yeah, Burma shave. Yeah, the Burma shave. And, I, and they, you'd get to the end and they would tell you what the product was that they're trying to sell, but at least it was interesting. <laughs> well, um, I'll take myself. When I was young, my, my godparents lived on a farm and they still had the, you know, the old crank phone on the wall. 
yeah. a party line. And parents both came from Iowa and every summer we would go back for a couple of weeks. And a lot of the families still lived on the farm and still had outhouses and had the hand pump at the sink. And I remember one place uh, we visited, I guess they'd be my, like my second cousins or something. They had to pump water from a hand pump for the cattle that night. And I thought coming from the city, this is the coolest thing in the world. So they probably, they just sat back and watched me <laughs> go crazy pumping. And I, oh, great, crazy kid. But they, and they had a, a windmill with a generator. That's, that was their power. Um, so yeah, I remember that from when I was a young person. And the world has, has changed quite a bit since then. Oh yeah, it wasn't even that long ago. Gosh, um, say 40 years ago when I was 30, we had a house burned down and we had to very quickly make a decision to go and buy another property. Um, and so we, we bought this little place that was on a very steep hill and down at the bottom of the hill was a windmill and a pump. And the house hadn't been lived in for a number of years. So there was no working water or electricity in the house. So the only thing that you could do was walk down to the bottom of the hill, fill up a bucket with water and carry it back up to the top. And we had managed to salvage a number of personal items that didn't burn up in the fire, but they all had to be cleaned thoroughly. So for weeks, we're going down to the bottom of the hill, hauling these buckets up, heating them on the gas stove, no electricity in the house. And it, it took us a long time to get things put together. And that's, that's only 1980, you know, that's very recent history. And yet there were a lot of people that were living like that, even at that mm -hmm. point in rural America. And I, I think people tend to forget um, how, how close we are to disintegrating back into that kind of thing. <laughs> it's not like that was 100 years ago and that's all in the past, let the bygones mm -hmm. be bygones. It, we could easily disintegrate back to that point again. Mm -hmm. So I can keep going a little bit. Yeah, we'll, absolutely. Yeah, um, just to mention that, that um, Entropy is not disorder. If anyone actually wants to watch the full thing, I, I like it for a lot of graphics. It raises some good questions, but uh, I caution because by the time you, if you watch it start to finish, you'll be more confused when you're done. I think there's statements. Um, it's like 90% of the things, 95% of the things they say are correct. And then there'll be these little one-liners in there, like the video clip that I showed which aren't quite correct. And so that by the time you're done, you're not quite sure if you've understood it or not. So the graphics are good. I would mm, be cautious. Uh, the other thing that they do in that, and the next time I want to uh, link to a PBS video on entropy, they talk, constantly talk about macro states versus micro states. Mm -hmm. and the macro is the outside view, micro is the inside view. Um, and I, that's when I've gotten into the habit of, of always trying to pull them apart and make sure that if I'm an outside view, that's all I, the language I use. So a lot of these videos are mixing the two together. And I think that's one of the sources of confusion. Well, one of the things that I saw on, on the PBS video and this other video, or maybe it was just the PBS video, is this idea that 
doesn't matter what happens to the microstates, that does not change entropy, but, but it's what happens to the macrostates that changes entropy. Hmm. I mean, that's what they said. I, I know, that's, that's why I have issues. But I, I think maybe that goes to that idea that it's that, that which changes thermodynamic properties. So I was wondering if the macrostates are related to the thermodynamic properties and the microstates are just related to location. <sighs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I sigh a lot. <laughs> The, the macro states, I would say, are, are defined by the thermodynamic variables. Heat, I mean, temperature, volume, pressure, things that you can measure. Um, entropy is not, well, they say it is, but there's not really. There's no such thing as a, like a meat thermometer for entropy. You can't just stick it in and say, okay, I've just measured it. Uh, but you can measure temperature, you can measure pressure, volume. You can measure chemical potential. You can measure number of, one of the potentials is the number of molecules in a box. So if you have chemicals that can interact, um, combine, so instead of two, two reactants, now you have one. So the, the number of the N gets smaller. That's, that's one of the variables you can measure. Entropy tends to, in the classic sense, entropy is only defined as a change in things. It's, it's, um, it's a process variable. Um, it's not a thing in itself. It's so, I could say the entropy would be like your, your trip to San Francisco um, in the classic sense, whereas in the, the Boltzmann statistical mechanics sense, entropy would be San Francisco. They, he's, they've changed the process into a thing is, is that helping? Yeah. Um, yeah, we, we keep trying to give entropy this identity and it's not really, um, at least in the classic historic sense. Well, it sounds like when you say that entropy is only defined as a change in things, um, it almost sounds as, well, and, and of course we know that ent it's entropy that gives the arrow of time its direction. So part of my brain is trying to say maybe entropy is just the inevitability of time. Or time already, the arrow of time already has a direction, in which case the second law was a consequence of that. That's an open question in physics. We don't know. And so that's, that's the kind of things that you, they don't really throw up uh, in these kind of um, popular videos. I think because then it would raise questions which would throw off the rest of the flow of, of the talk or the, or the description. Mm -hmm. So, in other words, there are some things that they don't know, <laughs> right? Right. But everyone understands that the second law is what's primary. Entropy is just a mathematical, in some sense, to keep track of what the second law is trying to tell you to do. But what is more? What is the fundamental thing behind the second law? That is, that is to be discovered. Or at, at best, maybe you can keep poking at it and asking questions and, and 
gain a little more familiarity with it over time, but still not really understand what it is. Well, we do know that it has something to do with life because um, I think Schrodinger, in, Schrodinger said life absorbs order and injects disorder into the surroundings when he was talking about the nature of life. Mm -hmm. So, so he's putting life right in the center of that whole entropy thing. I would say life happens because of something in there. There's some fundamental uh, glitch in the matrix is happening to the fundamental laws of physics that out of that allow life, this thing we call life to happen. So, well, you could call it a glitch in the matrix or you could call it a, a little hidden treasure. <laughs> it, you know, however you want the it. The anomaly, just, you could call it the anomaly. <laughs> so, I'm kind of, I've run, I've run out of things on my notes, so. Well, I, I think that's probably a pretty good place to end because um, what we've done right now is bring up a lot of questions. Hopefully people who are listening will think of a lot more questions. And if anybody has some questions that they want us to explore, I hope they put it in the, um, in the comment section. Oh, because I've got one, one last homework, um, okay, homework thing to think about. And it's one of the examples you, uh, you gave me. You asked me if, if um, a key in a lock mechanism were an example of an intelligent system. And I think I said yes. And so I'm going to eventually be talking about computation. And I think everyone thinks about computation as something that computers do. But think about the lock mechanism itself is doing a computation on the key as the input. So the key, the lock mechanism is asking a question of the key, what shape are you? And then in this case, the intelligence is built into how the system works itself. It's not running a program. And then the choice is to un unlock or lock, stay locked, depending on what key was inserted. So that's the challenge to see if you could grok that the fact that a key and lock mechanism input a decision, an intelligent decision function with a choice or a, an action. Uh, state output. Um, is that, does that make sense? Yes, I wonder if you could repeat it one more time because it froze right there towards the end of what you were saying, so. Okay, now, now I've said it once, I think I could say it better again. Yeah. Carl Friston, he talks about the sensory states and then he talks about the active states and then he talks about what happens in between. So I would say call the key, inserting the key in the lock and the mechanism sensing the shape of the key as the sensory state, the asking the question. And then the lock either latching, staying latched or unlatching is the action state. And the intelligence or whatever you wanna call it, the if else then process is actually built into the mechanical structure of the lock mechanism itself. There's not a computer running a program it just works the way it does because that's the way it's been built. So you can build intelligence into a mechanical system um, without a program or anything that we usually associate with computers.
I love that. Yeah, that that explains it very clearly. Yeah. And and so the question then is, is that is the lock mechanism actually making a choice? Yeah. And that gets us right back to our first conversation where we got into so much trouble. <laughs> well, yeah, but you know, I understand it's it's a choice of vocabulary words. Mm -hmm. So maybe maybe Carl Friston's vocabulary would be a little easier for people to to use. But um, it's something to think about before we, we, we return again. And I will tackle entropy again as an intro segment. And uh, we'll be looking at the PBS um, uh, uh, show on entropy or exposition on it. Okay, so we're going to watch the PBS one on uh, the nature of entropy. Right. And then um, what else did you want to cover after we do that little piece? Uh, then start going further with the, the notion of computation. That Oh, okay. That That's great. Yeah. That we'll get that. back. You'll see a lot of talk. Um, you know, Paul Davies, uh, a lot of talk about life is information. Uh, but information doesn't make any sense unless there's somebody or something using that information. And that's where I would say that computation is more fundamental than information. Because without computation, the, the concept of information is, doesn't make any sense. I want to get to next. Okay, sounds exciting. Okay. I can't wait. I'll see you All right, thank, thank you. Okay, thanks, Glenn. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.